I'm so glad you've made it to East City Wesleyan's podcast uh, page. Uh, my name's Brett Jones. I'm the lead pastor here at East City Wesleyan. Uh, if you would like to find out anything more about uh, who we are and uh, how we're trying to learn to grow closer to God and serve our community, uh, you'd be welcome to get in touch with us at the contact details on the page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and, and see how we can serve you. One Sunday afternoon, I went to an open home. Not just any open home, however, not the first home I lived in. This was the home of my youth from age 7 to 21. This was where I lived through so many experiences and events that shaped me. It was the venue for hundreds of backyard cricket matches, on-the-mat bouts and endless reenactments of, of stirring epics like Robin Hood, It marked my transition to intermediate school, college, and university. It was the scene of disappointments and triumphs, the death of pets, to winning the top award at my primary school and trialing for the Auckland Secondary School's rugby team. And it was there my dad came home to die, except he didn't make it even that far. I moved out soon after. The house had been substantially remodeled and repainted. In in some rooms, I could have been anywhere surrounded by monochromatic acceptability. In other places, I could still make out the dark, cedar-brown paint around the edges of the now white windows. I grew very familiar with that paint over the years. It was a surprisingly emotional experience. Memories flooded in, so much to remember. I smiled at the little things that remained, the ugly bathroom bench top, somehow surviving the ethnic cleansing of renovation. Little things like taps and toilet window glass, pavers and washing lines, a vivid memory from the smallest room of a challenge to a God I didn't yet believe in but so little of me. I began to search. Surely something remained beyond memories. My room had become faceless, and while the window so often used as a means of egress might still have accommodated me, it didn't seem like it was my place to climb out it any longer. Not in an open home anyway. In vain, I searched under the deck for something of me. This had been the setting for many a clubhouse. I wondered if I dug up the floor, whether the keepsakes I had buried would still be there. It didn't seem like that was a good idea for an open home either. Surely I had scratched my initials somewhere under there, nagging memories of tagging the space, tugged at my recollection, but I couldn't find anything. No trace of me. And then it came to me. I knew somewhere where the frequency of my passing had worn a memory into the structure of the house. No one would know. It must still be there. The house in typical 70s style had a flat iron roof, which made it great for climbing and hiding and exploring and jumping off. Around the back of the garage, the retained slope was just close enough for a young boy to jump up and grab the lip of the roof. Over the years, it had become easier, more of a vault than a mad scramble. I ran my hand along the edge of the roof. Funny how low it had become. Starting at the far end where I had never been until I found me. 
where years of climbing onto the roof had begun the inevitable pulling away of the roofing material from the main structure, traces of me, of my passing, remained. Memories I have are plenty, but somehow it mattered that the house remembered me, that some trace of my passing remained, that it was so small didn't seem to matter because home is where the heart is. It's an understandable arrogance, perhaps, that it matters so much to us that we might matter. Sorry, Victor. That we yearn for like, like significance in our world, that the world would tell the story of our passing in some way, even our house, that we might even yearn for evidence that we have lived, that we have passed uh, this way in the world. We want to be seen, the tangible, physical evidence of our of our passing, our achievements, our possessions, even our families, and those less tangible things. The footprints that we leave, the, the people that we touch, those that we are known by and yet strangely still loved by. Sometimes that seems like it might be mutually exclusive to be fully known and yet fully loved. And somehow, the state of our heart is tied into all of this, into all of this yearning. Who we are and whose we are. We long to simply come home, come home. But often we find ourselves just marching off in the other direction. Because home, home, that's where the heart is. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, as we gather around your word today, would you continue to call us home? You've been our home for all the generations. You've been our refuge. Would you call us once more home to you? Would you remind us that the people around us are part of our family, that together we are a household? Would you call us home that we might more and more and more reflect Jesus? We ask it in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen. Well, in the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, uh, we find the Apostle Paul categorizing his achievements. It's like his CV, a kind of an advance eulogy, uh, if you like. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteous, righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
It's a great CV. Paul, born and raised in the Jewish faith and the Jewish culture, was someone on his way up. He was someone going somewhere. He built his life and his sense of who he was on this family heritage that was so much a part of his life. His, his dedication to following the, requirement, his, the requirements of the Jewish uh, law. Success in his hobby. He made tent making a profession. But he'd moved on. Moved on from that part-time work into persecuting the early church on a full-time basis. These things, family, faith, vocation, culture, religious observance, these were the, the foundations of his life, the things that undergirded who he was. And now, in verse 7, but whatever, whatever were gains to me, the whole list, whatever way that I account for my life, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. According to verse 8, he actually considers them rubbish, trash, garbage. This whole list of things that have defined him. And the translator is being polite. It's a bad translation. Garbage, rubbish, rubbish. The term that Paul used is more frequently used in other literature to refer to excrement. And he's not being coarse, but he's being clear. All of that, all of that, which was so much a part of who I was, is as if it were excrement. He picks the, the most abrupt and offensive word picture that he can to really help people to see what this change is in him. It's so profound. He's searching for the words to capture it. But whatever against to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. See, for Paul, these things have, have paled into significance. The CV has paled into significance uh, when it's compared to the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. They've become less attractive to him because of something more attractive, much, much more attractive. They've lost their power to entice him. They've lost their power to define him. And Paul has stopped evaluating his life based on who he is and where he comes from and what he's been able to achieve on the visible evidence of his worth, of what can be seen of him. And he started valuing it based on what can be seen Christ. It's a complete turnaround. It's, it's as if the righteousness of Christ has eclipsed 
all that Paul has ever tried to do for himself. It's become the most visible part of him. Now, I, I relate at some uh, level to this. Because everything, everything that I have in my life, everything I own, or possess, or have, come back, comes back to one day. One day. Actually, maybe, maybe two days. In 1986. The first day was in December 1986. When I prayed in the 70s decor toilet of 194 Cook Street. Now, it was an interesting prayer because I was praying to a God that I definitely did not believe in. Not a chance. And this was the prayer. You have one week to show yourself. That was the prayer. Now, I've since actually learned that it's not like proper. Like it's not, not very Christian. Well, I wasn't a Christian, so who cares? It's not, it's not right to pray like that and to give God ultimatums, apparently. I've learned that. I've also learned that an atheist's prayers are more powerful than normal prayers. Think about that. I think God acted on my prayer. The second day, also in December 1986, in fact, it was the second to last day, the last day of 1986, at the end of the week, which I had so generously given God to reveal himself. And it was the day that I called the whole thing, the whole experiment, call it what you like, I called it off. I was done. It was the sixth of seven days, and so I rested. I was at a, a Christian youth camp, and I'd, I'd done my bit. You know, I'd worked really hard to live into my side of the bargain. I'd listened hard, so hard, and I'd, I'd tried to work it all out. See, I wasn't lacking in the ability to understand what was being said. That, that wasn't the problem. I just didn't believe in God. Small barrier to being a religious person, to being a Christ follower. And I went to all the meetings that they had, and I even went to one of the extra credit meetings one night and uh, responded in that, uh, in that meeting to an invitation that went something like this. If you want to be a Christian, stand up. And so I did. Because words are important to me. The words were, if you want to be a Christian, stand up. And I wanted to be. This fitted me perfectly, I thought. The, the, the lifestyle, the sense of purpose, the people, the focus beyond myself. But I still didn't believe in God. 
The speaker had a reputation as a bit of a kind of Holy Spirit kind of merchant. Some of you will remember Bill Sabritsky. So I hoped that God would zap me. So I stood up. Don't stand too close to me. It might happen today. (laughs) Nothing happened. So I sat down. Another thing I've learned, God still doesn't perform on my command. But I was disappointed. I'd given a lot to this journey, and I, well, a week, six days. Uh, But I didn't realize that this whole quest was at an end. I tried to reason my way into belief in God. I tried to befriend my way uh, into the kingdom of God. I tried to match my social conscience with his. And at the last, I had even tried to show faith. Albeit that it was probably half a mustard seed's worth I'd hoped it would be enough. I ended up talking with one of the older guys that night. And I realized that the only thing that was stopping me from becoming a Christian was my lack of belief in God. Just a small detail. And I realized that all of my efforts all of my intellect, all of my, the emotional energy I was pouring into this, all of my desire, none of that was going to be enough. And that was just the way it was. It's just the way it was. I actually went to bed that night in the tent with a, with a degree of peace. I'm not sure that I had realized just how wound up I was getting by the whole thing, how much emotional energy was going into this, trying to puzzle it all out. And I woke next morning and realized as I woke that I believed in God. Not so much that I believed in him like something that I had worked out, but that he was there, right there. It's hard to explain, you know, and like Paul, I'm not going to use the word excrement. I get why Paul needed to be extreme, because it's really hard to explain when something like this happens. The best that I can kind of describe it is, right around that time, I'd found the need to start, we've just become all very indistinct. It's a lot more intimidating, a lot less intimidating. Around that time, I discovered that I needed glasses, you know, a lifetime of sitting at the back of rooms. And um, when I first got my, my first set of glasses and I put them on, I couldn't believe how clear and distinct everything suddenly was. It was like I'd been given new eyes. That's how it was that morning. I couldn't believe what I could see and how distinct everything had become. And so that morning, 
in the, in the morning meeting. I didn't wait for one of the altar calls. But see, I'd been around a few Christians. I'd been going to this youth group, these crazy people at Trinity Methodist Church, and, and um, you know, very sincere and lovely people, but just weird as. Um, and so I just came to Jesus on the hay bale that morning. I'd, I'd seen it done enough. I knew how to do it. And I returned home and started visiting churches. And early on, a wise pastor uh, advised me to, to find a home church and settle down. And I had two choices, to go to my friend's church who'd taken me, which is a successful, spirit-filled Baptist church. That's the second largest church in this area now. Or go to the less exciting Methodist church uh, with the newly appointed youth worker. And I chose the second, or maybe I sensed that God chose it for me. Because later this church would become the place that I developed my faith, which ministry developed. And after the core of the church planted East City Wesleyan, the community to which my call to full-time ministry was recognized. See, I know that as a person, everything that I am is a result of his power and not my wisdom. And that's important to me. As a mildly competent, relatively intelligent individual, this is an absolute starting point to me that nothing that I can think or do or believe or intend is enough. Everything that is now me is dependent on God first providing this way for me to know him and love him. And look, I get that it's embarrassing that basically God overwhelmed my will while I was sleeping, which is essentially a Calvinist conversion when Wesleyans believe in free will. God beat me up into becoming a Christian. And all that had come before and all that I thought was a part of what was coming was worthless compared to that moment. Paul's language in verse 8 and 9 kind of captures it a little bit for me. Let's have a look. Oh, we, we might just wait. There we go. These, these words really, really get it for me that I may gain Christ and be found in him. doesn't matter how lost we are, how lost the people that we know are. We get to be found and come home. See, I've been found. I have a home. And it's a home that remembers me, that knows my name, that knows who I am. Because home is where the heart is. 
So what does all this have to do with the church's values? <laughs> Which is the series that we're in, Coming Home, a series exploring our values. I mean, it's nice and all, we like your little story, Brett. But what about the values? That's all we're here for. Well, it's a simple equation. See, you and I must learn to live as Paul describes it. As people who are found in Christ. As people who are found in Christ. As people who are learning to see that what they Whatever they have and however they have it, that it's worthless compared to the greater value of knowing Christ. As people's, people whose lives are centered on what God has done for them. The God who is great, how great thou art. The God who is good. And not on what we have done for ourselves. As people, we are learning, and as a church, we are learning to become Christ-centered. Christ-centered. I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him, in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. See, the challenge is, often, you and I, we have trust issues. We have trust issues. We are not always convinced that Jesus knows best. We're happy to know the power of the resurrection, but we'd rather have a a little bit of insurance, a little more certainty, and perhaps an escape hatch when it comes to participation in his sufferings. And our culture, it entices, it lures, it calls us to the idols of, of comfort and security, and these shape our lives even though we wish they didn't. We find ourselves, we make Choices and we, we allocate priorities, we, we apportion our resources, we choose and unchoose friends, we change jobs, we, we invest in relationships, we provide energy and time, all because of what we're going after, what we, what we value most. What, what dream of the future we're driving towards, what is really at the center? And if we're not careful, this will, what's in our culture will impact the kind of churches that we create. Sometimes we, we're tempted to create churches that are culture-centered. Churches that are centered on, on tradition and people like us. And it's this way because it's the way it's always been. Sometimes even our cultures of origin we're not prepared to critique them in light of the gospel. Culture-centered churches. And they're not Christ-centered churches when they're like that. Or convenience-centered churches. They kind of feed me, serve me, entertain me. The cry 
I need to go to a new church because I'm not getting fed here. Well, learn to chew your food. That wasn't scripted. Sorry if that came <laughs> But last week we talked about whether we've broken something recently to bring someone to Christ. What does it look like for us to be inconvenienced for the gospel? Convenience-centered churches. Or even, we're going to look at this in the next couple of weeks, creed-centered churches. Churches that are more focused on what they believe, which is important. But it's when you become more focused on what you believe than who you believe in. There's a group of people in the Bible that were like that. More focused on what they believe than who they believe in. They're called Pharisees, you may have heard of them. Where our churches become, if you like, Christ adjacent rather than Christ centered. Nearly, but not quite. So close and yet so far. See, being a Christ centered family is about knowing at the deepest part of who we are that Jesus is. Enough. Enough for us. All that we need. It's about living out of the the raw and the real love that God has for each one of us. Living out of that very direct experience of God's love. Of this being a, a daily surrender. priorities and our energy and our focus and what we're giving ourselves to, what we're being inconvenienced for. Because it's no more and no less than people growing through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. That's what it looks like on a daily basis, is to be Christ-centered, to be surrendered to who he is calling us to become. It's no less than, than us together reaching others with the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed the grammar on the vision. People growing, that's easy. And then it's easy to say reaching others, right? But the grammar actually is people growing and people reaching others. People reaching others. All of that being who we are and who we are becoming. It turns out that becoming a people growing looks a lot like Surrender of giving up. A lot like trust. A lot like the presence of Jesus just waking us up every morning and then flowing through our day. I love Steph's prayer this morning. Oh my gosh, I nearly became a Christian again. (laughs) Because being Christ-centered is where our hearts beat in time with God's love for the world. God's vision for how a just, peace-filled, loving world might be. That this might be where our hearts find themselves because it's what it means for us to be home, where the heart is. But Paul is realistic. 
I think he's realistic. I think he's helpfully realistic. And Paul knows where we're at. And he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all of this. Anyone want to argue with Paul on that? Not that I've already obtained all of this. Or I've already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, Paul presses forward for something that he sees in the distance that draws him on. What he sees in the future draws him on uh, forward in life and, and equips him for life in the present. And for Paul, this dream, this ambition is a vision of life with Christ, a life with Christ. And for him, it's a dream of forgetting about his achievements and his possessions and his claims to status and his success and instead straining, reaching, yearning, thirsting for a life where Christ is at the center of his existence. It's an ache to be home. home now and in the future because home is where the heart is last Sunday uh, the church celebrated its values by presenting these, um, these, uh, these symbols and last week we did vision driven I thought about this one being how we do it this Sunday, but someone said that would be wrong. So we're just doing that one. And today we've been looking at what it means to be Christ-centered, and our symbol is the water, which is so much a part of the imagery that surrounds what it means to be a Christ-centered person, to be baptized, to be cleansed, washed by the water of the word, all of those wonderful images. And as we continue in our worship, um, you'll have the opportunity to come and claim a drop of water for you to take into your week. That it might be something that calls you to this life of being centered in Christ. So as we continue and as we sing together, as we put to words what is in our hearts, come and, and be a part of committing again to being Christ-centered. Because of the nature of, I think, this value we're going to open the front up as well. So if you want to come for prayer, if for you this is a moment of saying yes, maybe for the first time, yes to Jesus, that's cool. Or maybe it's about saying yes again. If the Lord has been working in your heart today, if he's been calling you home, come, come, you're, you're home. This is a safe space. We'd love to pray with you. As you, as you take your place in your family. Let's pray together. Let's, let's stand as we do that, eh? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would reach deep into every heart, that you would confirm your call to, to each one of us as your dearly loved children. 
that you would remind us who we are and whose we are. Would you call us back to our to our first love, those those moments and moment that moment and moments when we first recognized who you were? Would you call us again into an experience of who you are? God, we long to just be home, to be enfolded in your arms. Would you embrace us? Would you receive us? Would you call us home? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.